Hello, I'm Kate Chabot and welcome to an extra edition of BFBS SITREP on the biggest issue in defence and world affairs right now, Ukraine. After weeks of Western warnings that Russia was planning an invasion of Ukraine, then that it could come at any moment, all of a sudden there is cautious optimism that an historic crisis might not happen after all. In this edition, we talk in depth to the Armed Forces Minister James Heapy about whether the West's being caught out crying wolf, his expectation that British training troops will return to Ukraine at some point, and whether this is really over yet. I spoke to him 24 hours after Russia told the world some of its troops were being pulled back to their bases. James Heapy, really good to speak to you. Uh, two days ago, we had dire warnings. Now there's cautious optimism about Russia saying troops are going home. Russia's insistence it's not playing an invasion hasn't changed throughout. So what has changed? Well, I don't know that on the ground anything has changed at all. And that is the point that the President of the United States, the Secretary of State for Defence and many other Western politicians have been making over the last 24 hours, that Whilst, of course, we should welcome uh, the things that are coming out of the Kremlin about uh, de-escalation, people going home from their exercises, and an apparent enthusiasm for a diplomatic track, on the ground nothing has yet moved. And so all of the urgency with which we were explaining the situation two days ago in order to warn British nationals in Ukraine that it wasn't safe for them to remain, nothing has changed on that front. But obviously we want to take the Russians... Uh, word in good faith. And uh, so people are cautiously optimistic, but we need to see military hardware moving away from the border before I think anybody really starts to um, let their guard down. And you seem so certain an invasion could be 48 hours away just a few days ago. I mean, how can you be uncertain as to what's happening now? Well, in fairness, I was never certain around a date. What I was saying uh, all along, because this has been the case since the weekend, that the conditions are set. All of the key enablers that Russia would need to mount an invasion have been in place. All of the artillery, the missile systems, the planes. So actually, my message at the weekend was even more urgent than, than it was 48 hours away. What I was saying is that it could literally happen any minute and with no further warning. I think that... You know, there have been lots of dates that have been speculated on when Jake Sullivan, the United States National Security Advisor, did his briefing last Friday. The whole point he was making was that the international consensus was around a date towards the end of the uh, Winter Olympics, but he, that, that he feared that it may happen sooner. Um, the fact is that the Russian hardware on the ground hasn't moved. Arguably, preparations appear to still be continuing. So until movements on the ground match the words from the Kremlin, I think people like me need to remain vigilant and uh, convey the sense of urgency that we feel. Russia's foreign ministry spokeswoman said February the 15th, 2022 will go down in history as the day Western war propaganda failed, humiliated and destroyed without a single shot fired. It looks like our dire warnings of Europe's biggest crisis since World War II were either crying wolf or just hugely misjudged, doesn't it? No. Why? Well, I, I think that, as I've explained, the... The reality on the ground is that 130,000 troops, 100 battalion tactical groups have deployed to Ukraine's land borders. There are thousands more 
Russian troops on amphibious shipping in the Black Sea. Over half of Russia's air force has been deployed to the region, along with all of the critical enablers that are needed to bring a force together for combat operations. That's not the sort of thing that you do just for an exercise, and your audience better than any other will know that to be the case. So, you know, we have all seen on open source uh, the build-up of troops. That is a fact. We have all seen on open source the critical enablers moving forwards. That is a fact too. So if Russia is changing its course at this late stage, that's to be welcomed. But I would argue that uh, Western leaders have simply communicated what the facts have been on the ground and in communicating those facts have urged Russia to seek a different route forward and arguably they're doing so. What about British troops? Will British training troops be returning to Ukraine? Far too early to say because, as I've said a couple of times, fundamentally nothing has changed on the ground. And that is, I think, quite important to anybody watching this who might be a British national in Ukraine. Our travel advice remains exactly the same because the threat of violence is exactly the same today as it was four days ago, given that nothing has moved away. So far, far too early to be saying whether this genuinely is all over, let alone making any judgments about returning British training uh, troops. Okay, so what conditions do need to change on the ground for British training troops to go back? Well, I think the very obvious thing would be that the Russians turn around and drive away. It is, we, we cannot, will not be part of a conflict in Ukraine. If we were, there would be a risk of escalation that would drag in the rest of NATO that I don't think is acceptable for anyone. And equally importantly, it would simply uh, deliver the pretext that President Putin wants to show that NATO has ambitions for Ukraine. Uh, and I think that that therefore would make a already volatile situation even more challenging. So once the Russians are moving away from the border, uh, then I think we're in a place to look at whether we can restore the mission. Um, for the time being, given that the Russians aren't moving away from the border, we have to remain uh, on the trajectory that we're on at the moment. And if the Russians do move away from the border, can you guarantee British training troops will go back? Well, it's not for me to guarantee that to you live on air, but Ukraine is a very important ally and partner. Operation Orbital has been a massive success, 20,000 Ukrainian soldiers trained. And all of my engagement with British service personnel who have been part of Operation Orbital says that they have found it really enjoyable and really professionally satisfying. So, of course, we would want to see that training resumed. But I, I really, really don't want to, uh, to put across any sort of false optimism. There is a there are grounds on which to be cautiously optimistic. But the President of the United States went on American television last night to mm. convey his concern that fundamentally nothing on the ground has changed. And I think it's really important that everybody has those facts in mind rather than getting too caught up in what the Kremlin is saying. But it presumably is quite important that British training troops are seen to go back at some stage because otherwise it looks like President Putin has won. Oh, I would agree with the premise of the question. Absolutely. It's just too early to be saying that we will definitely be sending them back and to give you any indication of a date. Once but it is the conditions, hope. Well, oh, completely. More, more than a hope. It would be the expectation. But once the conditions are, are met for UK troops to be able to return 
in a less febrile security atmosphere, we will get them back there as quick as we can. It's just right now I see no sign of the security conditions changing. I just hear some words that give us cautious grounds for optimism, but nothing more. The UK has announced a number of troop deployments to support Eastern European NATO allies in the last few days and weeks. Are there more announcements like that to come or are we just hitting the pause button on that for now? Well, I think it's really important that we don't sort of uh, rush to uh, overcommit, if you like. You know, there's a, we're doing this as part of a NATO alliance, so there are many other countries who will also be making commitments. What the UK has committed is significant. Extra typhoon to RAF Akrotiri, uh, allowing us to play a role with air policing in the Black Sea, the Eastern Mediterranean, and in Southeast Europe. An extra battalion and a brigade headquarters onto uh, Operation Cabrit in Estonia. So across all three services, the UK is playing a part alongside our NATO allies. What we now need to do is then let the dust settle, see what everybody else offers up at the NATO conference today. And if there's a requirement for more British uh, troops or ships or planes to be committed, then we have the appetite to do so. But I think it's important that that is all coordinated through NATO. And if there is a requirement for more British involvement, I mean, that obviously could be seen and pushed up by Putin as being provocative. Well, that's why I was very clear that none of this would be going into Ukraine. This is all about reinforcing NATO's eastern flank. And actually, I think that has been the message that we've been trying to deliver to uh, President Putin for some time now. Um, what he wants in his essay about the historical unity of Ukrainians and Russians is a territorial gain in Ukraine. He may or may not pursue that. But beyond that, if we look at the security demands he made of NATO and the United States uh, before Christmas, he wants guarantees that NATO will move back from Russia's borders, that there'll be less US engagement in Euro-Atlantic security. Um, the, the problem is, if he were to cross the border into Ukraine, and please let's hope he doesn't, um, he will end up with more NATO on his borders. He will end up with the US re-engaged in the Euro-Atlantic, uh, and he will end up personally as an international pariah. So all of the things that we think he wants, he achieves precisely the opposite by setting a foot inside Ukraine. Vladimir Putin, though, he does appear to have been in control of the situation for months, while France, the US, Germany have all notably different diplomatic responses. So has he actually succeeded in making NATO look somewhat divided in all of this? No, I don't think I would share that analysis. But I mean, if you, if you flip that question a different way, there he has been isolated and alone pursuing a track exclusively in the Russian interest, whilst the UK, France, Germany, US and dozens of other allies have had the huge advantage of being able to stand together in friendship and mutual collective security. Now, of course, any sort of multilateral organisation like that brings with it its frictions. But mm. if you're asking me whether I'd rather stand alone or with 30 of our best friends in the world, I'd absolutely choose to stand with our 30 best friends in the world. He's not exactly isolated and alone, though, is he? China has joined its call for NATO to close its doors. Well, I mean, I think that we all look with some concern at the emerging uh, friendship of uh, Russia and China. Uh, that clearly brings with it some quite profound strategic considerations for the rest of this century. Um, but 
I think it's important to also note that China is certainly not seeking to play any sort of active role in uh, Russian security interests in the Euro-Atlantic. So perhaps to compare apples and pears to ask, uh, to suggest that our need to coordinate an economic and military response within NATO mm. is the same as Russia and China having a, a friendship because that, that, that thus far has brought with it no military uh, activity whatsoever. And please God, long may that continue. Let's look forward now. What needs to happen now and what is the UK willing to do to make Russia feel heard about its security concerns? Well, I think you have to, first of all, be willing to hear in good faith what they are saying. So um, Western leaders have been clear that it's much easier to judge Russian actions rather than what they're saying. And at the moment, nothing is moving away from the border. But if things do start to move away from the border, I am certain that there are a number of diplomatic avenues that could be pursued. The Minsk agreements are uncomfortable for Ukrainians, but they are the basis on which Russia and Ukraine could come to a mutual understanding and we could de-escalate tensions. Um, there are mechanisms from the Cold War and more promisingly from since the Cold War through which Russia and NATO uh, were able to build confidence in each other by being able to uh, inspect weapon systems and, and uh, engage in dialogues. Um, so I think that there are plenty of diplomatic off-ramps, to use the term that our diplomatic friends use, um, if Russia starts to drive away from the Ukrainian border. But until they do that, I think we have to believe what we're seeing with our eyes rather than what we're hearing with our areas. Do, do you actually know what Vladimir Putin actually wants? And we know he's effectively demanded a veto on NATO strategic decisions, but he probably never expected to get that. So what is it he actually is realistically trying to achieve? Well, I, I don't know. I mean, I think the, he's... The submission he made to NATO and to the United States before Christmas was clearly unacceptable to, uh, to roll back everybody that's joined NATO anew since 1997. Um, clearly wasn't going to be something that we could accept. Um, I wonder whether he knew that or not. I mean, it could be that the submission of those demands was to create a pretext for NATO unreasonableness that allowed him to then pursue a military course of action. So uh, I think we have to wait and see what revised offers come out in uh, diplomatic conversations if they are able to really gain meaningful pace. Uh, and until that point, the alliance needs to remain vigilant uh, and we need to do all that we can to support Ukraine. If we don't really know what he wants, how can he, we expect to effectively de-escalate the situation diplomatically? Don't we need to try and understand his side a little bit better? Well, I, I don't think there's been any shortage of attempts to understand his side. There has been a constant flow of Western leaders to Moscow, plus all of the phone calls. Olaf Scholz was there only yesterday. But are we really listening? Because you heard the, the comments that were made after the Foreign Secretary's visit that the deaf people talking to deaf people, deaf and dumb. Well, look, I thought that Sergei Lavrov um, was very unreasonable in what he said to Liz Truss there. And we don't know how the talks went behind closed doors. What we do know is that 
um, you know, that she is not the first foreign secretary or uh, foreign affairs minister to visit Moscow and get that sort of treatment from Minister Lavrov. Um, I don't think that that is the, uh, the conversation on which to base the degree of understanding that Russia and the West has. There have been lots of opportunities for discussion. As far as I understand it from the readouts of all of those conversations, President Putin's position appears to have not really moved at all. Um, and that's a cause for concern because what mm. the West will never do is compromise on the sovereignty of countries who want to face westwards and be a member of NATO. And is there anything the UK is prepared to put on the table to de-escalate the situation? Yes, we're willing to put on the table a, a real enthusiasm for talking, for diplomacy, for um, supporting both parties in uh, the delivery of the Minsk agreement or a variation on the Minsk agreement that is agreeable to Ukrainians and Russians. We're willing to participate in NATO-wide confidence building uh, dialogue and inspections. So there's plenty that the UK is willing to be a part of. But let's also be clear, there are some things that it's not in our gift to offer. And it is not in our gift to offer anything that compromises Ukraine's sovereign right to choose what role it wants to play in the world. Do you have a message for President Putin at this delicate time? Well, as much as he would listen to the junior defence minister in London, I would just echo, as he's heard from every other Western leader, that Ukraine is a sovereign country and it, that sovereignty should be respected. If he crosses the border into Ukraine, he will be met with the harshest and most wide-ranging set of economic sanctions that there has ever been. And he and the rest of his government will be cast out as international pariahs indefinitely. This is a chance for the West and, and Russia to sit down, to re-engage in a dialogue, to de-escalate, to calm tensions, and for Ukrainian sovereignty to be respected, and for Russo-Ukrainian negotiations to be held between equals without one having a gun at the head of the other. James Heapy, thank you very much for your time.